That was the second movement of the Suite Ingenio by Antonio José. Welcome to Historias, the Spanish history podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today, I'm joined by Robert Long, a professor of history at Elgin Community College in Chicago, to discuss the life and memory of one of 20th century Spain's greatest composers, Antonio José Martínez Palacios. And I'm particularly excited about this episode because we're going to be listening to and commenting on a few clips of Antonio José's music along the way. So, Bob, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks. So I thought we could start out uh, with just a few basics about the life of Antonio José. So where was this composer from and what kind of family background did he have mm -hmm. growing up? Um, Antonio José was from the town of Burgos, uh, northwest of Madrid, about two hours ride. Um, at the time he was born, which was in 1902, Burgos had maybe 30,000 people. So it wasn't that large of a town and uh, very wrapped into the rural area around it, which uh, was fairly extensive, um, as it turns out, very culturally for Antonio Jose and also in terms of its basic population. And um, Burgos was a very conservative town for the most part. It was the seat of an enormous cathedral, which was built you know, over decades and almost a century uh, in the Middle Ages after the Reconquista of that part of Spain and is one of the great architectural um, masterpieces of, uh, of northern Spain. And you can see it from everywhere in the, in the area. And so the church was vitally important to Burgos. And, it, and as you, you may know, Burgos becomes the provincial capital of the nationalists at the beginning of the Civil War, when they were in, unable to take Madrid and other uh, larger urban areas. But at the time of Antonio Jose, and like I say, it had 30,000 people. He was born to a, a, a family of, put it mildly, modest means. His father was a confectionario, or a, a candy maker. He worked in a candy shop, and the, the family lived in a small apartment above the candy shop. And he went to public school at a time, and so that would be the early um, 1900s, at a time when there was public education in Spain, especially for uh, children, because by the end of the 19th century, the the Catholic Church had sort of put more of its emphasis on secondary school education, wanting to grow the priesthood, and um, less on in terms of elementary school. But they still had a presence in each of the elementary schools because mm -hmm. the catechism was taught daily. And it would be those teachers who would discover the talent of Antonio Jose and um, would turn him on to some of his earliest teachers. His family was not musical offhand, um, nor tremendously interested in music. And in this regard, he's an anomaly of many of the better-known composers of the day who came from upper-middle-class families, for the most part, including Defaya and um, Joaquin Rodrigo. And these were families that could afford education on the highest level and they recognized their children's talents in some cases. Not dissimilar, for instance, to some of the painters like Picasso, whose father taught art and was a, a, an academic. And um, so most of the composers came from a different 
group. He really is an anomaly in this regard. And to say he was totally self-taught is clearly not true because the priest did recognize his talent early. And But he picked up so much stuff so quickly that um, he, in some cases, started to exceed the talent of, of his teachers. He was a real prodigy. So he started out learning from his, his teachers and the priests in the school, and then how did he advance his training, so to speak, uh, from there? Well, it wasn't easy. He, he started composition studies with one of his organ teachers in one of the cathedrals, and he wrote his first classical piece, a classical piano sonata, in when he was 15 years old. There were many people that saw his talent, and in the town he was already being recognized as a, a young talent. He, he formed a little band eventually in his late teens and was playing in the Teatro Principal Zarzuelas in the back. He, he hated the Zarzuelas. <laughs> but he, but he, he loved the audience participation and the stuff, and finally he went ahead and um, applied for a grant from the city to go to Madrid. And in his early, early 20s, like I think when he was around 20, they gave him 2,000 pesetas because he was recommended by one of the uh, schools that had uh, interviewed him in Madrid. But it wasn't enough for him to actually enroll in the school. Mm -hmm. So he studied with some of the teachers there, and he had to work for a living in Madrid. And again, he worked in theaters, and he wrote music for, for the band, various bands he put together and but he had a lot of ambition to write more because he was listening to so much music in Madrid and he knew of all the movements of music in Europe that were both coming through there in Spain, but also music from France, the Impressionist movement, and um, even some of the more avant-garde things that were happening, like in Expressionism. So what were some of Antonio Jose's musical inspirations during his time in Madrid? Well, the one thing that's important about Madrid, and, and this is, pertains to the environment of the time and in the 20s, you know, this is the period of the generation of 27. And, and so Madrid was a focus for Spanish intellectual culture and artistic culture. He experienced a lot of music, heard a lot of things that he was just ravenous going to concerts and, and, and uh, checking things out. But he was also working as a musician. He became very enamored with both the music of Wagner at times and also the music of the French Impressionist. In particular, Ravel becomes unbelievably important to him as an inspiration. And, and, and so he writes, starts, he begins writing more and more and orchestrating himself during this period. And this is when he first writes his piano sonata, Sonata Cassiana, which then becomes the material that he turns into and he orchestrates to create his first symphony, Sinfonia Cassiana. So we're going to now listen to a short clip from this uh, mm -hmm. Sinfonia Castellana and then we'll talk about it a little bit.
So Bob, you're a professional musician yourself. So as we listen to that piece we just heard, how can you tell that this is an exceptionally talented composer that we're listening to? Well, even more than the fact that he was only 21 or 22 years old when he wrote the heartbed of this piece, which was a piano sonata, the Sonata Castellana, and then a year later, two years later, orchestrates it. This is what the orchestration you heard. Other than the fact that he was so young and that deep in terms of the capacity of orchestration itself, orchestration is the color of music in uh, classical music. It is the color of, of, of much of the more involved um, art of, of music. The wellspring are the melodies in terms of Tony Jose's um, music, and he was a researcher of Castellana folk songs, went out into the countryside and notated them, hearing people sing, going to dances, folk dances, and hearing people sing. But that's the wellspring of much of the music that's going on in this period of time, not just for him, but for most European, I wouldn't say most, many European composers, the whole school of nationalist composers. Now, this doesn't refer to nationalism of the political variety that fascism includes, or the nationalists who are one uh, of the forces in the civil war in Spain. This refers to really, it's the opposite. It really talks about the common people and the music made by the common people. Bartok was an example of musical nationalism. Dvorak in Czechoslovakia. Defaya in Spain and Rodrigo too. But their wellspring were the uh, folk music of the south, of Andalusia. Mm -hmm. Antonio Jose saw this wellspring right near to where he lived. And it had been investigated by Federico Olmeda in the beginning of that century, but it was, and Antonio Jose did his own research. And so it's those elements, those melodies, and when you hear what we just listened to, the very sort of subtle melody that appears out of that sort of very vibrant beginning is one of those folk songs. And they will weave their way through all of his music. Um, and so that whole, all of those aspects, here's a person who's 21, 22, who's developing his own voice in addition to his obvious technique and his capacity, puts him in the category of top talent of, of music of his day. I understand that Antonio Jose also spent time in Malaga and Paris. Why did he travel to these cities and how did they influence him? Well, he goes to Paris in the, he gets, a, he gets funded again, a, a small grant from the city of Burgos and he goes to Paris for two summers and he's again he's overwhelmed by the resources of the city that's what he loved about Madrid and even more so of Paris he's hearing things that he never would have had the chance to hear and he becomes very very much in this period of time influenced by the music of Rebel who he, he hears a mm -hmm. lot and it also is possible there was an apocryphal story that Ravel, they had a meeting and that Ravel anointed Antonio Jose as the, the next coming greatest composer from Spain. But in the early biographies, there was no indication. There was nothing to back this up. It was a secondhand story and mm -hmm. there was no definitive evidence. Well, it turns out that in the recent couple years, last couple years, with the advent of this 
wonderful documentary on his life, Pavana Triste, uh, that came out. Uh, Sergi Gras was the producer, and, and it, it debuted in Spain at the beginning of 2017. In their own investigations, they did, in fact, find a letter amongst Ravel's own papers that is a letter from Antonio Jose in Spanish. And Ravel, it's pretty clear, Ravel spoke Spanish. His mother was Basque, but she lived, she grew up in Madrid. And um, that uh, he was very familiar with Spanish, and so it's written in Spanish to him, and the tone of the letter is not an introduction. In other words, he's not um, saying, I would like to present myself, I'm Antonio Jose, whatever. He's responding, he's calling him maestro, of course. He's very, uh, very much um, observing Ravel's stature. But it's, it's a conversational letter and with, with questions, but, but it's, it seems pretty obvious that at the very least they had at least met. And so that's the first evidence of that. And that certainly would turn the Paris experience into a really vitally important one. Ravel is a master orchestrator, and Tony Jose sops up much of those influences, but turns them into his own his own voice. So Paris was vitally important. Uh, and then he gets a, a, a teaching position in Malaga, and this is an important point about Antonio Jose. He does not come from a wealthy family. He actually is making more money by far than his father was making when he can playing and he feels a deep responsibility to support them and he really can't turn down too many jobs that are offered and this is a very good job it pays him decently it is also one of the most fruitful periods between 1925 and 1928 in his composition periods it's when he wrote the piece that we heard at the beginning from the suite in Hanawa that's when he uh, started I believe thinking about an opera which he then will spend the rest of his life writing, and it, it is itself is a massive work, three hours long or two and a half hours long, and has not yet actually been fully performed as an opera, though it's been done as a concert. So this period was really important in Malaga, and he came to love Malaga, and he loved the music that he would hear. There's an essay that he wrote. He would write pieces back to the Diario de Burgos, the newspaper, and, and they would print. He, he became sort of a correspondent for them. And one of his essays is, is printed, and it's I translated it. Uh, would you mind if I read some of it? Please do, yeah. So he wrote this piece. It's a, very, it's a very introspective piece, and it gives you a sense of who this person is intellectually and the depth of his intellectuality at the same time as his maturity. Um, we're still talking about someone who is like 26, 27 years old. It seems that one day the composer had wandered in Malaga into the El Parque Malagueño and suddenly was caught by the sound of a guitar player. I'm reading from my dissertation mm -hmm. here. He stopped to listen. He was an old man seated alone on a secluded bench, playing, as far as he could tell, playing for himself, just for his own pleasure. Mm -hmm. And Antonio Jose writes... It is, without a doubt, the best way of purely externalizing our inner selves. The old man was feeling, and immediately he tapped his feeling on the vibrating strings of the guitar in order to enjoy the same emotion reflected through the spiritual mirror of the instrument. So in the same moment, our old man was author, player, and listener, three aspects of a single will. Very clearly, Ortega y Gasset says in one of his most interesting essays that the external man is the actor who represents the internal man. 
Well, says Antonio Jose, the external man can, on occasion, when speaking to others, be apocryphal, forgive the word, but when one speaks to his own internal man, how is he going to lie to himself? So uh, this was his coming kind of to, to maturity in terms of himself as a person and also in terms of his art. And then he gets this position in Burgos to return to to direct and kind of resuscitate the Orfeo Burgales, which had been a very well-known uh, choir choral group, secular, not not uh, church, and uh, in the part of, early part of the 20th century, but but kind of had fallen a little less, the organizational level had sort of dropped, and Antonio Jose came back with the idea of it being a place for instruction and for performance. And as he had been teaching, it was sort of natural for him to make it that kind of environment. But he didn't just want it to be a rich man's choir. So he went off into the countryside when he was doing some of his investigations into Castellano folk music, and he encouraged people to come from outside of Burgos to join the choir when he heard wonderful voices. And these are people who probably had never sung in this kind of choir ever. And this was a very important thing that he did because in a way it was kind of the mood of education of the Republic that he was actually mirroring. Right. We know that, for instance, Lorca did this with theater groups going out into the countryside and performing for people. In the case of Antonio Jose, he was very dedicated. He was dedicated to the Republic. He believed the Republic, and he believed in Republican education in terms of it being for everybody and also inclusive and being separated from what he kind of thought was oppressive about the church. And he even writes about that, which, um, and some of those views are going to be a problem for him indirectly. Uh, it'll take a little time for that. As he becomes, as his stature rises in the city, he becomes more and more recognizable. It's not that big of a town, even at that point. And so things that he says, things that he writes, conversations he has with people start, will start to get around, but he's not political. Right. This is really, he doesn't belong to a political party. However, his brother did. Julio, Julio is a socialist and very strong advocate of the Republic. But not Antonio Jose. But still, there will, there will be problems. But his tenor at the Orfeo Burgales is vitally important to him, even though he's beginning to feel a little hemmed in and would like to eventually get out and get back to Paris, maybe get to other cities that he he knows where there's great music scene. But he's got to work. Right. And and his family still is like, you know, his mother's old, his father's old, and he really feels responsible. So he takes that position right away in Burgos when it's offered. So let's now listen to one of the pieces that Antonio Jose wrote for the Orfeon Borgales uh, during his time back in Burgos. Yeah, he's a very much uh, incredible voice composer. He wrote for piano, he wrote for guitar, he wrote for orchestra. Choir pieces were often at the heart of his stuff. And this piece that we're going to hear is, again, his composition of two danza Borgaleses. Uh, not the part that is a part of his uh, symphony, but just they happen to be two dances, melodies from two dances that he um, arranged for his choir. 
We're going to play a clip from another piece here. This one, the Sonata pa Guitarra, which was also composed during his time in Burgos and, and probably his most famous work. So could you right. tell us a little about sure. this Sure. It is Sonata para Guitarra was dedicated to Regino uh, de la Masa, who was a very well-known classical guitarist in Spain at that time, but also was from Burgos. And Antonio Jose wrote this four-movement sonata. And what we're going to listen to is part four. De la Masa actually never performed the other three parts. He performed the first part. He never did perform the other three parts. This guitar sonata is now probably one of the most sought after for performance pieces by contemporary guitarists. There is, if you Google or you YouTube uh, uh, Sonata para Guitarra by Antonio Jose, you will get several versions of it. Julian Bream's done it. But the version I love so much is done by a, a young Russian guitarist, Irina Kulikova. And that's what we're going to hear. And we're going to hear the bear of the movements, the, the, the one that is probably one of the most challenging pieces. There have been theses and dissertations written about this, this work. And it is, again, the creation of an individual, A, who did not, was not a guitarist, but clearly had uh, a sense of the instrument. And considering we could think of Spanish classical music, flamenco, as, and the guitar is the heart of it. This is just another indication of the breadth of Antonio Jose's talent, I think. So that piece was written in the early 1930s. During that time, 
What were the political tensions in Burgos that the context in which Antonio Jose was working in that period? Well, Antonio Jose, uh, like I say, was not a political animal per se. He wrote in some of his essays, which have been extensively, and I have to mention this this gentleman because he's just an incredible researcher, um, extensively examined by Miguel Angel Palacios Garros, who was really in the late 70s, one of the prime movers in resuscitating the story of Antonio Jose and his music. And to this day is still, I think of him as the, uh, the sort of one of the founding fathers of that movement. Mm-hmm. And he wrote extensively about it. And he points out that Antonio Jose, while he, he had views, and in some of the essays of his that... Uh, Miguel Angel put together for a, in a book of his, it's clear that he he conjectured about politics, he conjectured about what was the best system to live under and so forth. He was influenced by his brother Julio, who was a socialist. He basically favored the republic enormously. He felt it was our government, our, our Spain now, and that this was, that was uh, an element. But again, he wasn't overtly political in normally, but the tensions were rising to such an extent. The Falange existed in Burgos. And he knew some of these people. Like Lorca had friends who were in the Falange. They would have conversations and disagreements. Also, this group of Albanistas, Albanyana, was a um, right-wing advocate. Uh, his group were, were the legionnaires of Spain. Um, the Carlos, who were more religious-oriented, were right-wing, and Antonio Jose had friends among them, and they were they were um, a presence in Burgos. Burgos was a, a relatively still conservative, but yet still a Republican city. And it's what's really fascinating is to look at the Diario de Burgos the night before, in July of 1936, the uprising by the military against the Republic, see the newspaper, and the next morning see that the whole tone of the newspaper had changed and now the Burgos had been saved from the from the Republicans and now were under the general control of uh, Emilio Mola and his generals from the north. Uh, Burgos fell immediately and they were determined, the heads of the, the nationalist movement at that point, to not just root out what was left of any kind of Republican military resistance, but the culture of the Republic. And they all clearly make it plain that they are going after anyone with sympathies. And within two weeks, they round up most of the very well-known people who were active, and even those who were sympathetic to the Repub- in the Republic, and Antonio Jose would be caught and sent to prison. While in prison, he receives a letter, an anonymous, an anonymous letter, charging him with being a communist, a Marxist, a Jew, uh, everything you could, you know, everything that any of the right-wing people would use as sort of a derogative term. Not ever, though, being specific, not signed, calling him a, his, his music is worthless. His, and and this is, he receives this when he's in jail, and he's like stunned because he believes he had been a promoter of Burgos culture, and how could people feel this way about him. Well, it was all part of the let's wipe the slate clean of this culture. That 
Anonimo turns out, but Miguel Angel in his investigation shows that points to a particular individual and says probably it has as much to do with the politics as musical jealousy that this was a person that uh, Antonio Jose, who had who was in a position to choose people for the choir and also for some city bands, had had not chosen and was very jealous of him and his, his abilities. And this was kind of common for those kind of anonymous letters. It wouldn't just be because of the politics strictly, but the politics would be the, the motivation that would drive it. But it could be personal animosity. You right. turn in your neighbor just because you didn't like them and then claim that they were traitors to Spain. And that uh, slight administration change in the uh, governor generals of, of the area from a Carlos who had some sympathy for Antonio Jose and, and the artistic work he'd done in his teaching to a Falange member mm-hmm. who becomes the head, gov- the head of the military. And when that happens, and that person's only in office for a very uh, short period of time, he signs a death uh, warrant for Antonio Jose. And the way that that worked is that what technically on paper is that the the jail frees him, and you can see the release document. The jail is freeing him. But what they did was they freed him over to, they handed literally him and 23, 24 other prisoners one night in October of 1936 over to a Falange group who had come with a truck, and they put him in the back of the truck, and they drive him out about 15 minutes outside of Burgos, take him into a field and have a grave dug or have them gri- dig their own grave and shoot them all. Yeah. And he's still, to this day, they're not exactly precisely sure where, in a similar fashion to the to the Lorca execution. So my theory on all this is that, yes, there could be several extenuating circumstances, but that mostly he was a high-profile figure in a relatively mid-to-small-sized city, that had sympathies clearly for the Republic and for Republican education. And this is, there's a lot to support this kind of idea in terms of Antonio Jose because they went after teachers all over Castilla. Uh, some of the, some very well-known teachers of, of grade school kids, Republican teachers in general. That movie, um, La Langue de, de Mar- Mariposa, mm-hmm. is a... And is off of a uh, of a short story. It is, in fact, a sort of outline of how the the teachers of the republic were treated uh, when when they were clearly had influence. So that's my my take on on the death the death side of it. On the other hand, for forty years, his music was never played in Spain, mm-hmm. and very little was ever said about him. It wouldn't be until the nineteen seventies when at the very end of the beginning of the 70s and then towards the end where where people would start to bring back Mm -hmm. both memories of him and found music of his and and these newspaper articles by critics around spain had been written about him his his pieces had been formed in bilbao and madrid and barcelona in Um, the second republic in the second republic Uh uh-huh um, but not after for the next forty years. So his music was banned during the uh, Franco dictatorship. Yes, what a letter was sent from the city uh, security officer to the the new head of the Orfeo Burgues. They had sent 
to the to the security officer their proposed program for their concert. And he wrote back and said, no such composition by this author is allowed to be played. And so they withdrew it from the program. They didn't play it. And, it, and never again in Burgos, up until the 1970s, would his, his music be performed. The, the real kicker, I guess, in general, is that it would be a Cuban-born guitarist, Ricardo Isnaola, who came to Spain and discovered this piece and he was shocked first of all by the by the astounding nature of the piece but also that he had never heard a word in all his time in madrid about this composer mm-hmm. and this would be the late mid 1970s late 1970s and said this is astounding i want to perform this piece and he would be the first person to play the whole piece on spanish radio all four movements and it broke open at least initially the performance end of his a book had been written about him by Miguel Angel and and some uh, collaborators but in terms of a lot of performances of uh, this guitar work there had been none and Ricardo is now who is now a professor of music at I think the University of Denver broke open this uh, really brought to the fore the depth of of Antonio Jose's talent mm-hmm. and bit by bit People have been coming back, and more has been performed. Some has been performed by orchestras in other parts of Europe. I would love to see some of the orchestras in the United States grab a hold of some of his music. So it is. So it actually had to wait until the death of Franco before some of these pieces. Oh, to absolutely, be because they were there were uh, people who would surmise that maybe it's time for us. There was an article written, I think, in 1971 that. Uh, in actually a Falange paper, a little, uh, the Falange paper of the Burgos area, general region, that uh, said, I think it's about time that we actually started to examine the life of this guy. And there was more coming bit by bit, but not until Franco dies, not mm-hmm. until the beginning of the transition. So could you tell us a little bit more about some of this recuperation of the memory of Antonio Jose that's been happening recently? And specifically about this documentary that yes. came out a couple of years ago, Pavana yep. Triste, and I know you've been active in uh, in promoting that yeah, as well. Yeah, um, a really major undertaking of two years, f- crowdsource funding it in part and in part from some grants and people's donations and of a documentary that they just premiered at the beginning, and I want to say the beginning of 2018. They finished it and they premiered it in last January, I believe. I went over to Spain to, to go to it because I had been in contact with them. In fact, I did an interview with them um, by uh, Skype just because they had seen a little of the dissertation or something like that. And I do get a very like minute credit 49 uh, minutes into the uh, the credit rolling, <laughs> um, which is fine because mm-hmm. I didn't do anything. <laughs> they were really nice to, to even do that. They worked their tails off and are still trying to present it to festivals around Spain and and in Europe. And they debuted it in Burgos and uh, I've shown it. I showed it once at a small, uh, small gathering in uh, at UCSD. I was trying to work out something with Cervantes here um, to see if we can't do a performance of some of the music plus show the documentary. I want to help them in any possible way I can, because I think it's really worth it. And it's a, it's a, a great 
encapsulation of the life of this of this artist. Yeah, so we'll try and include a link on the webpage to uh, to their website. And so I thought to conclude our episode for today, we could actually play a piece that you've arranged of one of Antonio Jose's compositions, specifically the Suite in Henoa, the same piece that we, that we heard opened. at the beginning of the program. Right. So maybe you could sure. introduce this recording and tell us both as a musician and a historian, what what inspired you to um, arrange this piece and, and what you've gotten out of uh, studying his music. I started to study the piece itself, the piano reduction of it, a couple years ago and, and started improvising with it a little. What you're going to hear is a session, recording session I did with Ken Habick from Elmer's College on uh, upright bass and Charles Heath on percussion. We do a jazz waltz version in a sense. Well, you'll you'll hear it as it plays out. The beginning, the tempo is a little faster than the original second movement of the Sweet Hanawa, but it's um, intended to sort of paint that picture and how the the music is. Uh, what attracted me is the harmonies, the tonality, and the music and the harmonies that he's using in this are to me very jazz like. They're very contemporary for the period of time. They're Many of the composers of Europe were influenced by jazz. I don't know that he was directly, but he was certainly he certainly had played jazzish type stuff as playing for theaters and so forth. And so he he clearly had those harmonies in mind, but so did Ravel, so did Debussy. So that attracts me as as a as an improvisational backdrop. That's what sort of got me. And I, and I think it's a way of continuing on with his. His, to me, very inspiring music. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for coming on the program. And um, we'll leave you with the music of Antonio Jose, performed by Robert Long. Thanks so much. It was great, Foster. I really appreciated this. <laughs> 